All right, hello everybody, and welcome to a special roundtable uh, starring uh, Skep- the hosts of Skeptics and Seekers, as well as Ask an Atheist Anything. I'm Dale, the Christian or Seeker. I'm uh, David, uh, the Skeptic. And from Ask an Atheist Anything, we have... <laughs> I'm Matthew, one of the hosts on Ask an Atheist Anything. And I'm Andrew, the uh, other host of Ask an Atheist Anything and uh, Raving Atheist, maybe. I, I don't know. I guess we'll find out. <laughs> Excellent. So, so yeah, we have a, a special a special show today. And this came as a recommendation from uh, one of our listeners uh, named Lisa. Uh, and she asked us to do a Grill a Christian episode, like uh, what Justin Briley does in Unbelievable. So uh, for today, I'm going to be in the hot seat. Uh, I've got... Um, three questions from the from my colleagues here uh as well as three audience questions um and yeah uh basically they're going to ask the question uh we'll go around in a circle and people will give their take and then we'll end with the christian answer so i'm going to be in the hot seat today basically we'll we'll end up with your answer not necessarily the christian answer but sure go ahead Okay, uh, whatever. We have established this on our show. And and you now see how it's going to go, audience. Uh, You're in for the ride of, uh, yeah. See, I got a warm-up because me and David recorded our SNS show today. So, okay, I'm in in the mood. I'm I'm ready to go. um, Okay, that was too much information for a podcast. Now we have to label it as an adult uh, with adult content. Okay, no, no, right. that's let's, S and S. Before we go down uh, this road, yeah. <laughs> um, I could have to get it in the moderator. So, yeah, let's, you're, let's, you're thinking about a different show, Kip, uh, uh, Andrew. No, 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 yeah. no, 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 <laughs> so, no, no, no. Right. Not thinking yeah. about the S and M show that comes up shortly after this. So, stay tuned. Yeah. Uh, so, <laughs> all right. The, the S and S is the clean version. Matthew. I believe you had you had a couple different questions, so I'm going to ask you to pick. Pick one. Um, uh, for, yeah, what, what's your first? What's your question? Well, yes, you're right. I did have a couple of questions, and you quite accurately said that the first question, which instantly was my preferred question, had some crossover. So I'm happy to take your guidance. Now I'll go with question number two, which is different to all the other questions. I'm, that's uh, very cool with me. So my question uh, is: Different church traditions follow different methods of baptism example, infant baptism and adult baptism, full immersion or a, a splash on the forehead. Now, some denominations, uh, and I'm, I'm thinking specifically Baptists, but it, uh, we, don't have to, uh, uh, we don't have to single them out, will go so far as to say that their method of uh, baptism is the only one that really counts. Is baptism uh, of an individual important, and does the method by which they are baptized really matter? Uh, okay, uh, so first, in terms of the answering, uh, we'll we'll start with the skeptics and end with me. So, uh, David, what what's your take on this baptism question? In my early Christian walk, I thought it was very important. It was immersion only. Uh, as I grew more liberal before going out the door, uh, I decided that it wasn't important at all. Um, and so. Now, as a non-Christian, I just see it as a as a an occult ritual, uh, where where Christians have a wallowing in a blood ceremony that I that I just think is rather rather <laughs> disgusting. So um, so at the end of the day, I I, I do find it um, borderline occult, if not all the way. But as as a Christian, 
uh, early on as a fundamentalist, yes. As a liberal, no. Okay. Uh, and how about you, Andrew? Well, so David and I come, I, I think we've said on the roundtables in the past, in the, in the first two, that we come from a similar religious background. In fact, we grew up in the, in the same part of the, of the world. But I think I would maybe go a little further than David. So I absolutely agree that baptism is, uh, is a ritual in Christianity that's connected to blood sacrifice. But I'll go further, uh, or, or Dave, maybe you said this and I just didn't hear it properly, but um, in my religious days, I would have said not only is, is baptism important, it is the only and final step by which a person can be saved. Without baptism, it is in fact not possible for a person who other, otherwise claims Christianity to find themselves in heaven. Okay, all right. And uh, how about you, Matthew? It's your uh, question. So. <laughs> it is my question. Answer yourself. Um, I, I have a um, motive behind uh, the, the question, but certainly in my early Christian years, I was very fundamental, and baptism for me was uh, a full immersion uh, only. That's uh, how Jesus did it, and I didn't see any other way to do it. Uh, and I saw it as a, a critically important step uh, in your Christian faith. This was your your public declaration uh, of Christianity and your public declaration of commitments to Christ. And so I considered it uh, of critical importance and that it was very important that you did it by full immersion. Um, as I as I grew up as a Christian, as I became a much more adult Christian, I softened on that uh, slightly and I was quite happy. Because in the Church of England here, they don't do uh, baptism as such. They have confirmation because you're baptized as an infant with a little splash of water on your forehead. And as, a, as an adult, you do what's called confirmation, uh, which I see as the, the adult equivalent of, of baptism. And that's a public declaration of faith. So I think what it achieves and what it performs is, is the same thing. Uh, it's called different mm. names, and the ritualistic part of the ceremony is very different between the two. Um, so this is where we get onto the crux of, of going. So I see those two things as, as the same in terms of what you're doing. Obviously, now that I'm no longer a Christian, I I just don't see see the point of it at all. I think if somebody is a Christian, they stand up and say they're a Christian, and they live their life to the best of their abilities as a Christian. I genuinely don't see what the the public ritualistic declaration of that faith has to do with any of it. I don't see why there is any importance on it. The importance to a person as a Christian is how, how they live their life, not some ritual that they did 10, 15, 20 years ago or however long ago it was. So I, I don't see it of any uh, importance at all. Um, so going back to why I asked the question, I have actually been in a church, in a Baptist church, and it, when I say Baptist, I mean Baptist as we call it in England. I don't, it, which doesn't bear much of a resemblance at all to what in America would be called Southern Baptist. They're, mm. they're two kinds. So, so if I say Baptist, please don't equate that with the um, fundamentalist Southern Baptist in, in America, which other people will be familiar with. Mm. Um, but anyway, I have been in a Baptist church in the UK where we were talking about leadership and eldership of the church and church's position was if you haven't been baptized as an adult by full immersion 
you're, you're not entitled to be a deacon or an elder in the church. And I and I said to somebody in the church, why? What's so important about it? What if someone's being confirmed in the Church of England? Isn't it the same thing? Does it mean the same thing? And they looked me in the face quite seriously and said, no, of course it doesn't. They can't be an elder. They can't be on the diaconate if they haven't had that ritual. Um, and I was stunned by that then, and I'm even more saddened by it now, this, this tying of this kind of role and task to a specific ritual rather than actually questioning is the person's life, is the person's attitude, is the person's credentials good enough to grant them a position on this? And they're not asking that question. They're asking, have they performed this ritual as an adult? And I don't think that's the right way around to look at it. But then, I guess, as I'm not a Christian, my opinion possibly doesn't count. <laughs> but there's, there's my answer to my own question. Excellent. Okay, so, see, I am somewhat sympathetic. I, I actually attend, I'm, I'm a Baptist, so I go to a Baptist church myself. Um, now, I don't quite go all the way. I, I do would agree with you that I don't believe in baptismal regeneration. I don't think baptism is necessary for salvation. Um, however, it is important. It is a universal commandment, just like taking part in communion that Jesus gives to all Christians to do. Um, so I, I don't think that you can be a Christian and, and just say, oh, that, the heck with it. I'm not going to obey, uh, obey Jesus. I, I'm not going to follow what he tells you to do. And baptism is an important public declaration of your faith, of the fact that you have been saved. Um, and so in that, in that sense, I would, I would agree with all of you that um, I don't believe baptism is a sacrament. It's an ordinance. I, I don't think that um, it's appropriate um, to baptize babies. Or, or if you do, then they would need to be baptized again as an adult. Um, you know, they, they need, I believe in believer baptism. Let's, uh, someone's, um, and in terms of the mode, um, I'm sorry. Uh, oh. My apologies, Dale. That was uh, that was voiceover on the machine uh, oh, talking okay. out loud. No worries. So, so yeah, no doubt. I I was baptized by immersion. I think this is the the best um, way to do it because that's the way everyone in the Bible was. Uh, it, it better symbolizes your dying and rising again, uh, with just like Jesus. Um, but I'm not. I'm not dogmatic. I don't. I don't think it's sinful necessarily. If if you were sprinkled or, um, or poured with water, um, I don't think that the mode is essential. But I do agree that immersion is the the best way, and it is the biblical way uh, to do it. Um, so yeah, that that would be my take on baptism. Um, I guess. I guess what we'll do quickly. I'll, I'll allow. Um, I'll, okay, I'll, we'll do this. We'll do one round back and forth after this. So since Matt's the one who's asking this question, if Matt has a follow-up question, I'll give it to him and then I'll answer. If he doesn't, then it'll open up to Andrew or, or David to give one follow-up question on baptism then. So so Matt, do you, do you have any follow-ups? Uh, I do. Um, I'll ask forgiveness in advance. This is a little bit facetious, but I think there is a, a point to this, which hopefully the nuance of it will be got. You mentioned about the, the method is important and therefore full immersion because that's biblical and that's what happened to Jesus. Now, 
Jesus was baptized in a river, not in a tub in a building. I too, when I was baptized, I was baptized in a river. Is my baptism better than yours? Uh, no, so I, I wouldn't say so. And that, that's what I said. I'm not uh, dogmatic, right? Like I, I'm not saying it has to be immersion, uh, but I just think it's, it's better because it better illustrates uh, the meaning of it, right? You're dying when you're under the water and then you're rising to life. Um, and that, that is the way they, they did it in the biblical examples. Um, so yeah, that, but it's, I wouldn't say it's necessarily wrong to do it with a different mode. Okay. I, I could take that one on forever, but I, I think the point is taken there. That's good. Thank you, Dale. All right, cool. Um, so our next uh, question uh, then. Can, can I ask a quick follow-up? Um, okay, but make it quick. It is very quick. I I'm just trying to understand. I fail to understand what you mean by better. <clears throat> then you say that it's better because it's one of the things you said is because it's biblical. So in my religious background, if it's biblical, it's not better. It's the only. Um, you know, if you can trace a clear, thus saith, thus saith the Bible, <laughs> then that is the way to do it. And so I'm not entirely sure how you come up with, you know, these other options are just as good, even though they're not biblical. So if you could just provide some color on that. Um, sure, because that's you reading. You're making the same mistake that a lot of Christians do. You're reading in your headcanon and then imposing that dogmatically. The only churches we know of were house churches. Does that mean we, we're not allowed to have churches as institutions? But, but no one would say that house churches are better. What you said was that the form of baptism of immersion was better because it was biblical. So it's it's better better because I think it better illustrates the point of what's what what the purpose of the ceremony is, right? You're dying and rising. I think it's better illustrated through immersion than through sprinkling uh, some water on the head, which I think is rantis, rantizo. So does, the, the does, does the fact that it's biblical, though, does that matter? Because you said it a minute. See, that's why I'm, why I'm confused. You said it as if that mattered, as if that was something that added to the quality of it. And then you turned around and said, but then it doesn't matter. So the biblical part, does that matter or not? Well, I'll put it this way. It's 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 safer then, I guess you could say, because, okay, well, I'm doing it the way they did. So I know, I know 100% this is a right way to do it, if not the only right way to do it. But at least it is a right way to do the baptism ceremony. Okay, thanks. No problem. Um, um, just, to, just to round that off, then, um, does baptism, in your view, have anything to do with forgiveness of sin? Is it, since it's not an ordinance, is it required uh, it, so that a person's sin can be forgiven? Uh, no, so it is, it is an ordinance, in my view. It's not a sacrament. Oh, I'm sorry, I misunderstood you. Okay. Yeah, I, so I, I, I reject baptismal regeneration. So, um, yeah, that, that would be my answer is no, it's it's not essential to salvation. You're saved, then you're baptized. That, yep. Uh, all right, cool. So so now we'll move on to Andrew. It's your question. And I don't know in advance what it's going to be. You just said it's something to do with openness. So I'll be interested to see what you're... Well, so... We were talking uh, 
on one of the boards that you and I participate in together about the uh, notion of God's hiddenness, not not openness, but hiddenness. Okay. And and so I think this has maybe been addressed uh, in the past on one of the other roundtables as well. But I'm still troubled by your notion of hiddenness. And this perhaps ties into the last question. So I think you're arguing for a particular scheme of redemption. And and it's a, even if baptism is required for forgiveness of sins, I think you would argue that uh, hearing the word is important, believing it uh, is essential, uh, repenting of past wrongs, be they uh, wrongs that we know we committed or unintentional wrongs that we're unaware of, and asking for forgiveness of those wrongs. So do we track together so far? Uh, yeah. yeah. Okay. Yeah, I thought we would. Um, so we have, in fact, a very specific scheme of redemption, uh, and and that blazes a trail uh, through the entire Bible. If you, uh, you know, if you take the the conservative view, the the scheme of redemption is in lockstep between the Old Testament and the New Testament. So we have this plan that we, you know, seemingly should all abide by, right? This is the this is a place where God is not hidden, right? So, so it's pretty clear. There, it's pretty clear that there are things that God wants people to know, right? Hearing, believing, repenting, confessing, being forgiven of sin. Those are things God wants people to know. Yet, there's a tension between the things that Christians claim God wants us to know and not being able to demonstrate conclusively that there is a God behind those things that Christians would say God wants us to know. Okay. Okay. Uh, yeah. So what's, what's your question? Like, you, you want to know why so, that is? Or? Well, or, or we can talk about pizza. You know, <laughs> no, <laughs> Foxy, yeah. I, I mean, I think it's, I think it's pretty, yes, there's a, there's a clear tension there and to form it, uh, to form it as a question. Okay. Why so. the very specific things God wants us to know without being able to tie them equally to a guaranteed existence of God. Guaranteed. Okay. Okay. Um, so yeah, we'll start uh, David. What's your, What's your take on that? Yeah, I so no, I got I got very little to add here. Uh, hiddenness of God, so we're not supposed to know for sure that He's there, but we're supposed to know for sure what He wants. Is a is a kind of strange conundrum to me too. So, I'll I'll just echo that and wait for an answer. Okay, you know what? I, I'm gonna change the format because this doesn't make sense. Like I think the way I had it planned. So like I sh I should answer the question first, and then if you guys are each gonna have a follow up. So like then okay, you guys give your take as a as a follow up, and then I respond to that. You know what I mean? Like it'll save more time. Sure. I think. Works for me. Okay. Sure, that's fine. Okay. All right. Cool. So, okay. So the hiddenness of God. Um, I, I didn't. I thought you weren't going to be asking about this or something to do with openness. So, but that's fine. So, it is. It is true. I, I think the best uh, atheist argument is the hiddenness of God uh, against God's existence. 
Um, however, I still think it is a weak argument. It's not a forceful argument um, because there are various defenses as to why we wouldn't or shouldn't expect uh, God to reveal himself in a more conclusive way. So um, I think if I understand what Andrew's asking, it's not even so much about the fact that God doesn't provide any evidence. Um, You'd be happy to say, well, even if God could prove himself, let's say 60% that he's real, you're saying it's more the degree. It, It has to be conclusive in some ways that is that correct andrew like that's what you it should be conclusive proof well uh, well okay i'll i'll just provide a, a brief example um the young children in my family uh, when i ask them to do something i don't write my request of them on a piece of paper and send it through the mail and uh you know and create a lot of obfuscation between who I am and the request. And what that allows is for them to make a decision about whether my request is reasonable because I I make it to them largely in person or in some sort of communication they're familiar with. However, we normally communicate. I might send something over a text message, but they'd at least have my phone number, right? And, And so commonly, we make decisions about requests made of us based on the context of those requests. And it seems to me to be very strange indeed that we understand the normal context of human requests. And, and you know, Matthew and I host Ask an Atheist Anything. We, we swap emails and we make requests of each other. But we have a pretty clear context for those requests and a way to go back and forth about how a, how the, a request should be actioned. And this notion that God is hidden, yet making a request of us, is very strange indeed in the context of the way we perform other requests, like something of our children or something of a business partner. Okay. Okay. So... Yeah, I guess all I would say is um, it, it is seemingly strange, definitely, right? That's why it requires an explanation. Um, but I, th- I think that comes in with what is God's goal, the Christian God's goal. It's not it's not just to reveal the truth of certain propositions. Um, it's to save souls. And I know you guys will have heard, heard this a million times, but I, I think it is, you know, if, if God just reveals himself, 100%. Hey, I, I'm real. I'm the Christian God. Look, I'm Jesus. You know, if he shows up to everyone, that that doesn't necessarily translate to everyone placing their faith in Jesus. They may believe the proposition, yeah, Jesus is God. Uh, but you'll have people like David and Tara who, who make no bones about it. Even if he is real, I don't care. I'm choosing to go to hell. I'm not going to follow this, this evil monster or anything like that. So through God hiding there could be certain reasons or justifications uh, molinistically speaking as to why that would be the case one example that i've provided in the past is that applies to me is that it it instills a certain certain characteristics that are fit for heaven such as a hunger or a desire for truth and being able to be patient persistent and uh you know seeking out and that truth and willing to 
you know, follow in the path of righteousness. There, there are certain characteristics that could uh, potentially only be instantiated in people through God being hidden. Um, now, you might think that's totally ridiculous or, or something like that, but the problem is once we're dealing with people with libertarian free will, which is what I, I believe in, then, yeah, unfortunately, people make choices or, or act in ways that are ridiculous. Um, so God has to compromise and work within that framework through through his middle knowledge. He knows that even if, he di even if we uh, did show himself 100%, that doesn't necessarily mean we would choose to acquire these properties or characteristics. So this is my, my answer as to attempt at defeating why, why wouldn't God provide clear uh, communication or, or proof of these propositions. Um, so yeah, I think we'll go to David already. I'll give David one follow-up no, kind of I thing. Don't, I don't need it. We've, talk, we've talked about it on SNS, and so I, I will let yeah. that stand okay. for the sake of time. Okay, uh, so Andrew, and I should have started with you because it's your question. So uh, do you have a follow-up for that? Does, do you kind of get what I'm... I do. Um, I've got a very brief follow-up. I, I think there's a, I think there's a reasoning flaw here, um, and and that reasoning flaw is that through hiddenness, God can instill uh, some sort of objective in you that that God can try to further some set of actions on you uh, through hiddenness that couldn't be done in open view, and uh, so. When I ask something of the people around me, I don't ask them and then go hide. And I don't have to build a, a context of a lot of spiritual writing, uh, notions like middle knowledge, in order to try to prop up the, you know, whatever requests I'm making. In other words, I don't have to be mysterious about it, right? And I don't see any sense at all in which being mysterious about my existence or my requests of people actually promotes a thriving ecosystem on which I can base a relationship of belief. Okay, uh, and I, th I think that, that makes sense on a theoretical level, but the, the trick that's coming in is, is because of people's free will. People don't act ra rationally or, or they don't always make choices that we would expect they should. Um, so, you know, how, how I would just say, like, how, how can you know um, you don't you don't have middle knowledge like God does? You you don't know what every single person would freely choose in in a given circumstance. I, I hear you laughing. I, I'm trying to give a. Um, no, I'm not. I, I haven't laughed. Oh, okay. I, I'm hearing things, but uh, yeah. So. This, it's, this is it's the inner witness of the spirit that you're hearing. <laughs> yeah, well, let, yeah, that's let, me, me laughing. <laughs> <laughs> okay, that's me laughing too, yeah. That's a good one, dude. That was a good. Uh, no one would deny that people make choices that are stupid or, or don't make sense, right? Like people don't always react or choose the way that we we think they should in a given situation. Like they're you know what the heck was this guy thinking, or something like that. Um, so yeah, that that's how the argument works because God does know this, and He's deemed that it is necessary to communicate in uh, 
in a less clear ways than your email communication in terms of revealing himself to people. Um, yeah, that, that's how okay. I... Right. <laughs> and, okay. Yeah. Uh, and Matt, Matt, did you have any follow-ups on that? or? Um, uh, yes, yeah, so I'll, I'll take a slightly different angle uh, on, on my response because it would be a bit pointless me re repeating the objections um, that uh, David and Andrew said because I share those objections anyway. But um, my, my response is, yes, many, many Christians and apologists uh, acknowledge the challenge of the hiddenness of God and how can you be certain of, of things of God and how can you have uh, absolute confidence in the in the presence of God, and um, many of them welcome or even celebrate that, that um, and use that to um, to to elevate the, the position of faith uh, and the importance of faith within in Christianity. Um, but then, on the flip side, you have Christians who have absolute confidence in in what is uh, right, what is wrong, what the Bible says. Well, what God says, what God's will is, the nature of God. And I, I think there's a straightforward uh, contradiction in here. You either, God is either hidden and you don't fully know, you have to take it on faith, or God is uh, absolute and reveals unambiguously and you know for certainty, for, you know for certainty and absolutely certainly certain things are true. I don't see how both can exist together. It's one or the other. And I think the fact that we have such confidence or uncertainty in some aspects of God or some things that God has said, while at the same time God is uh, hidden and vague uh, and needs to be searched and, and needs to be uh, exalted upon and you need to interpret, you need to study for hours to get the tiniest nuance. I, I think that those two things uh, existing so openly in Christianity is, is enough for me to reject Christianity. Okay. Um, yeah, I would, I would just say I think that's being a bit too hasty. I mean, I, I would expect under my Molinistic defeater, which you're not in and of itself refuting here, because that's that was what Andrew was going going for, kind of thing. But yeah, I think we would expect a mixed bag. If if God is choosing to hide Himself in general or to specific individuals because of this Molinistic reason. He, he's responding to their, their what he knows through his middle knowledge, their free will choices would be. He would know that it would be good not to reveal himself clearly to Dale um, for the years he was doing his religious research so he could go through the motions and develop these character traits. Oh, but now, as of May 5th, 2018, now it's good for me to reveal the truth for him. And maybe two years from now, it'll be good for God to strengthen my faith even more. Um, or vice versa. It might even be the case that God has a plan for me to lower my faith and then go up again or something like that. Um, so that we have to remember that individual free, God deals with individuals, um, their, their free will, and can respond to what's, what's best for them in relation to his overall plan. So I, I would expect a mixed bag, actually. Okay. Well, okay. I, so, what, if God so, is hiding himself from me, why on earth should I care to find him? I mean, I, I obviously have good reason for not believing in him because he's hidden. So why should anything that you say matter if God is hiding? 
so in your case, because you you have to be an honest seeker, right? You should, I don't expect. Well, wait you to a minute. Is God hiding, God. or am I dishonest? Because I think you're trying to play it both ways. There, I'm I'm declaring myself honest, but God's hiding. You're saying no, no, no. God's not hiding. I'm dishonest. Which is it? It could be either or, um, or both and. Because you you are supposed to be. So I, I'm not sure that you are an honest seeker, um, ba- just based on things that you said. And I, I know this is going to get into somewhat of your questions and stuff like that. Yeah. Um, I, I my honest take, and I haven't interacted with Andrew that much, but I, I think he is an honest seeker, just based on what I've what I've seen. Um, so yeah, if God hasn't revealed Himself to you, it could be because you're a, a dishonest seeker um but god in his overall providence even could be using that because you need to be an honest seeker maybe i'll come on and and say this and that'll prompt you what yeah i I really do need to look into this so i'm going to seek him and then god might not reveal himself he might stay hidden for a couple years while you go through that process but then so long as he reveals himself before the point of no return as i've said it a million times then that's sufficient. That's where God's responsibility is. It's it's not to reveal himself instantly to everyone as clearly as possible. So that does segue into my question. Can I go ahead and ask it? Yeah, absolutely. I, um, so I'm going to cheat. I wrote three questions. I'm going to ask three questions, and you can answer it as one because it's all, it's kind of a, you know, one steps uh, toward the other. So I'll let you deal with it the way you will. So um, you can think of it as one question in three parts, a trinity. Um, so oh, sorry, I didn't hear that. I was okay. <laughs> that's okay. You you wouldn't have appreciated it. Okay. Uh, I said it was one question in three parts, a trinity. Um, so do you want me to? You want to ask so, the first one? I'll yeah, give a short answer. No, I'll just okay. I'll just put them all together, and um, you then you just kind of deal with it however you like. Um, so one setting aside some, uh, speculative point of no return. Is it ever reasonable for a person to be an unbeliever? And if so, explain the second part of this question, given that a person has reached a reasonable position of unbelief, is it reasonable for them to stop seeking, uh, in an area they have deemed a dead end? So, in other words, can can you ever stop once you once you've reasonably uh, mm-hmm. come to unbelief? And then three, uh, having concluded uh, that the God of the Bible is distasteful and perhaps evil, is it appropriate for that person to close their hearts to such a being? After all, a Christian would not open their hearts to Satan, and they would be justified for keeping Satan out. So why is it not uh, that an atheist uh, uh, not justified in keeping uh, their hearts closed to what they consider an evil god of the Bible? So there you go. Okay, um, cool. So my answer for number one, is it ever reasonable uh, for a person to be a, a non-Christian, to be an unbeliever? Uh yeah, I do think that there are people that can be rationally justified in, in being unbelievers. I myself was one for years. Um, so, yeah, uh, the answer is yes to that one. Um, 
Now, your second part. So given that a person has reached a, ha, is rationally justified. So, so just to clarify, I don't think a person can ever be warranted uh, in terms of thinking that Christianity is false. Uh, but I do think you can be rationally justified. Right. I'm not interested in uh, whether they're right or wrong about it. Okay. Uh, okay. Um, so is it ever reasonable to stop searching? No. Um, well, actually, so my answer is yes and no. So yes, only in the extreme case that you are you have you are one hundred percent warranted in knowing that that religion is false. Only then can you say that I don't have to study. I know that it's it's false. That's the only case. If, even if you're ninety nine percent warranted in thinking the religion is false, you must always be an honest seeker for the entirety of your life. Um, now, obviously, there's you know you've got to be there are practical limits do this right we can nobody can spend their entire life studying every single religion like there's no buddhist in the world that's read all of their own scriptures it's it's just not physically possible for someone to read all of that in one's lifetime for example right and that's just buddhism alone so yeah there are reasonable limitations um and that's why i always qualify it by saying you have to be an honest seeker to the best of your ability um and within you know, reason. So if I present you with an opportunity for a, for an example, I, I think you've got a duty um, to actually take some look in whatever degree, you know, whatever time you have available, whatever rational faculties you're, you're able to understand. Uh, I think you have a duty to be an honest seeker and say, okay, well, let me take some time to try and get to the bottom of this as best I can. Uh, if you refuse to do that and you're not 100% warranted in thinking the religion is false, you're a dishonest seeker at that point. You're not allowed to do that. I don't think you're interacting with the question that I'm asking very well. Really? Uh, okay. Yeah. I, I, so I think you're trying, but I think you're missing the mark a little bit. Um, okay. I am asking, you know, to the best of my ability, I'm an honest seeker. I looked into it to the best of my ability. I came up with an answer that it is not true to the best of my ability. Now you're telling me because I didn't come up with your answer, I have to keep looking. And I'm, tr I'm trying to understand, I'm trying to understand how you get there. Um, you're saying, well, I'm not warranted. And, and I, the only way you're saying that I'm not warranted is because I guess I got the wrong answer, but I got the best answer that I could come up with. I did the best study I could with the information I had. Um, and it came up, oh, well, no, this religion is not correct. Uh, I came by that honestly. Now, can I stop? No. <laughs> it, so you that's can't that's stop. the pro uh, that's the well, thing, and I'm trying to understand it. why I can't. But, the, but there's no special pleadia. I also have to continue to be an honest seeker, Christian. Unless you have 100% warrant. Uh, let me ask this, because I'm not 100% warranted in claiming that Christianity is true. I'm not at that level. So, are you? You've done all the research that you can to the best of your ability as an honest seeker. And you, would you say you're 100% certain or have 100% warrant that Christianity is false? I'm as, I'm as certain as I can be as a human about anything. I mean, it's, I'm, um, as cer I'm, I'm equally as certain that voodoo is wrong. And, and let me just be, let me be clear. I have not spent a fraction of the energy studying Buddhism. Uh, I'm sorry, voodoo. I have not spent an, a fraction of the energy studying voodoo as I have Christianity. But I am certain that it is wrong. And I am wondering, you know, are you are, are equally studying voodoo 
uh, have you, is your heart still open to voodoo? Are you still reading voodoo texts? Are you meeting with voodoo shamans uh, to, to listen to the latest voodoo arguments? Okay. I mean, is that um, what I've got to do, honestly? Yeah, um, yeah, uh, and including for me, it, it unless you, if you're claiming to be 100% warranted or... Uh, so, wait in, a minute, do I have to do that for great, every or... claim? Every religious claim, just because it's religious? Do I, you know, if, someone's, if someone tells me, you know, about, I don't know, Santeria, some kind of weird cult-like religions, or, or if, they, if they talk to me about, you know, supernatural encounters with fairies or, you know, whatever, I've got to, I've got oh. to be open to that, too, and I've got to, I've got to study it until I die? I don't, I don't understand how you're not special pleading here. Well, if it's a religion, yes. You, okay, you so if it's a religion, be... yes, you've got to you've got to stay open to every religion. What are, are there some things that you don't have to stay open to that are not religion? I mean, how how does religion sure. get this honored position? And I'll stop because I realize that we're going into a full on debate. But I I do not I am nowhere near close to understanding the answer that you're trying to give. And uh, since I will stop, also if you would pursue the the last part of that question, which is also a true thing, I consider the God of the Bible evil. Now, that's the God of the Bible. Maybe I understand him wrong, but for me, he's as evil as a devil. Why should I leave my heart open to him? Okay, so you, okay, so you want me to just move on? Or? Well, yeah, I mean, I'm just, I'm, I am announcing okay, that just... I am going to stop there and allow you to finish this however you like. Okay. Um, so just for my own knowledge quickly, and don't, don't give a long explanation, but Andrew and Andrew or, and or Matt, um, do you at least understand what I'm saying? Even if you disagree with it, do, do you at least understand? Because David seems to be saying, I, I'm just not even answering it. Do, do you guys get what my answer is, even if you think it's wrong? Yes, and yes, you're wrong. Okay. And Andrew? So I, I, think, I think that you're wrong pursuing so wait a minute first you asked this differently yes i understand your answer okay and and i'll even go so far as to say i would have given the same kind of answer um you know 25 years ago i'd also like to say to the people that listen to these roundtables um before i talk about why i think you're wrong and that david and i've been friends for a long time I know that you guys have these battles pretty often on skeptics and seekers. I will say to the listeners here, I've known Dave for 35 or 40 years, and I don't find him dishonest in his pursuits. So there was some question about whether David might be honest in his pursuit. Yeah. I will. No, no, I I know. And, And by the way, I'm not accusing you because I feel as strongly about your honesty and integrity as I do his. Yeah, well, but it's, I, it's my. I'll, I'll just correct it. Yeah, I I actually don't believe David is being dishonest. Um, it, it's it's because the terminology. I say honest seeker. So what's the opposite? Dishonest seeker. But there are three three different criteria. It's not necessarily that David's. Uh, the devil, and he's actually—he actually knows the truth, but he's lying. I, I don't mean he's. When I say he's a dishonest seeker, uh, I'm not necessarily saying that. I'm just saying he fails one of the criteria uh, for being 
I don't know what to call it, a true seeker. What 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 do you what's the word? I don't know. A, a real seeker or something. I don't know. I don't I don't know either, but I'll say this. Um if if Dave is not currently a true seeker, whatever however that might be glossed in the public eye. Mm-hmm. Um I know Dave. David and I went through our uh, some part of our religious experiences together. And I will uh, I, I will say that if you find me dishonest, that, that is the, the listening public, if you find me dishonest, okay, fair enough. But David and I went through some of this together, and we were both diligent seekers at the time. So whatever you might think of, of uh, polemicism versus some other approach, um, I think that it is fair to say that David— pursued this wholeheartedly and with openness of mind and reached his conclusions based on the things he thought were reasonable. Um, so I, I just, I think that, you know, yeah. standing somewhere between you guys, I think it ought to have been said. And Dale, I feel the same way about your approach. Um, now, here's where you're wrong. And, and here's why I am absolutely justified in putting a nail in the coffin of Christianity. And for all of the listeners who are about to hit pause and walk away, don't. When we approach a a conversation with reason, one of the things that we necessarily know about drawing a conclusion is that that conclusion must be internally consistent. Uh, to, To, for instance, decide that God, whatever God you think is real, is real. There cannot be a contradiction in the existence of that God's nature. Mm-hmm. Now, for myself, I have looked at this closely. I find the internal characteristics of the Christian God as laid down in the pages of the Old Testament to be contradictory. And because I don't think it is possible, and yes, I'm, you know, this is, yeah. I fully admit, this is, this is my internal landscape. But I am absolutely justified in concluding that a God does not exist and turning my back on that God forever when that God has some set of characteristics that are internally inconsistent. And I don't have to look any further. In the same way, I don't have to continue to search for whether two plus three can be four. It can't be because there's a contradiction in in that answer versus the way the world works. Okay. Yeah. So that, so I would, I would agree that. And that, that is what I, that, that's the type of thing I was meaning to say when I'm saying if, if you are 100% warranted in thinking, for example, that there is a logical contradiction and you, you've done everything to your power, then yeah, there's, you have knowledge that it's wrong. There's no, you don't have to waste your time uh, studying it, but it, I find the I, I I find it hard to believe that I, I don't like I don't I'm not I don't believe that you are 100% warranted in claiming that there is a logical contradiction in the concept of God's God's attributes. Um, so yeah, we that would need to be assessed and, and debated and that sort of thing. Um, I'm willing to put that on the agenda for next time because you know we're we're trying to do what we're doing here. Um, yeah. Well, but I, I'm, I'm going to be doing an SNS 
series after um, because I I promised that I'm going to do the ontological argument. So after I'm done with Messianic Prophecies and I've got a couple other things that I promised, I'm going to be doing the coherence of Christian theism, an entire series mm. on mm. the properties with, with David. And that's going to lead up into, okay, well, it's coherent, that, therefore it's logically possible. And then I'm going to use the ontological argument. So yeah, I've got that in the works. So. Okay. Well, if you, you know, I'm happy to participate if you ever, if you'd ever like for me to, uh, you know, yeah. but not, not pleading for a mic, just, uh, you know, we can have this discussion later on here or, or wherever else I'm, I'm open. You know. Yeah. Per yeah. Perfect. So here, here's the point though. If you're correct in that, then yeah, you are justified in saying, I'm, I'm not going to waste my time studying it. It's, it's logically contradictory. It, it, I wouldn't expect anyone to be open to two plus three equals four. So yeah. Okay. But, but how um, do we, how do we know that we're wrong? That's, you seem to be saying that we've got some burden to keep it going, even though we're justified, but not warranted. How do we know we're not warranted? We we feel warranted. We we studied. We the only thing that you're that you're saying about us that's not warranted is that we came up with an answer that's different from yours. So I I don't I don't think I um, I don't think I track with that. You're saying if we're warranted, if we know that we're right, then then it's okay to stop. Well, we do know that we're right to the best that we can know a thing. I'm not willing to say that I can't possibly be wrong about stuff, but to the best that I can come to that, I I'm I'm I know that I'm right. So why am I not warranted? Because you're not. That isn't what warrant is. You okay? But not so just explain enough, it to me. Like, well, I, I have. I was going to move on to your third, third thing, right? So okay, but it, so I, I'm. It, this is why this I don't way. understand your answer. <laughs> you're you're because saying yes, you can stop if you're warranted, if you know that you're right. Well, I know that I'm right, so I'm warranted. But you're saying no, you 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 can't be warranted because you're wrong. Well, how do I know I'm wrong? Right. So you have to always be open to evidence, especially on. On atheism, you have no grounds for warrant. You, we've discussed that. You believe in brute facts. That is, that isn't knowledge. You you can never have one hundred percent knowledge, okay. at least according okay. so to the, you. So the atheist can so, never be warranted, and so the atheist must true. always keep seeking. That's that sounds like what you're saying. Yeah. If, okay. If it, but seeking within reason. I'm not saying you have to devote every second of your life to study. Like we've got lives. We have to. God has a duty to work within what's practical, right? For for us, as long as we try our best, okay, I've, I've got a weekend free. I'm going to take take a couple hours. I'm going to read this article and try to decide on that. Um, yeah, but I did that last weekend. I decided and it, I decided that Christianity was false. Why do I need to do it again this weekend? Because you're never going to be warranted. If I present, <laughs> if I present, if somebody presents an opportunity to for you with something new or something like something that you haven't heard or is trying to has a new angle to refute your reason like they like i let's say i ask andrew why is the concept of god logically incoherent and he says well i don't think omniscience makes sense and and he explains what he means and then i say oh well that's not what omniscience means it it means this or something like that at that, that at that point andrew should be open you know it's an opportunity to have a discussion even and debate that point kind of thing. I would expect you to be open to going, oh, you know, Molinism. Okay, I've never heard of that. Does that work? And, okay. 
and stuff like that, right? Look, look, look I, I apologize to everyone because I'm the one who dragged this out, but please take a, at least a minute to address the last point, though, because I think that goes with this. And um, I've never heard a Christian answer for this question. It's not just... Okay, so remind the audience, though. It's not just that I looked and didn't find, but that the God that I was looking for in the Bible, that the Bible describes, seems to be evil to me. Now, maybe I'm wrong about that once again, but you know, I have honestly sought. But why would I want to open my heart to an evil God? I mean, why, why am I required to do that, but the Christian isn't? But the Christian isn't. Um, they're, not, they're not required to open their heart to, to Satan or to uh, a Hindu God. I asked this of uh, Joyce very specifically once. Yeah. Uh, why, don't, why don't you open yourself up to m- the many Hindu gods? And she said something about, you know, they, they, they could be devils, you know, demons, and she would, would not, in fact, open her heart to any other god. So, and can I, sorry, yeah. now, can I add to that? Um, why not just open up to simple non-belief? So the reason I mention it is the other beliefs that you were talking about are character-based, some Hindu god or, um, you know, or, or Zeus or uh, Thanatos or, or whoever, right? Those are all character-based assessments, things about which we would necessarily proclaim a positive belief. But why not simple unbelief? O- open yourself to simple unbelief, which is not uh, based in some character but based in the lack of evidence. Yeah, so that I, I would agree that that's, that's also a good question. But yeah, if you would address both of those, I mean, I don't, I don't want to open my heart to something that I think is evil. Do you think that I am required to do that? You are required to be... So we, we again, this is a topic we discussed in the show, and I, I gave you the shocking answer. Of, yeah, we should be open to the fact that learning Satan might be good. Uh, or that a Hindu god might be true, unless we have 100% warrant or knowledge that these guys are evil, um, then we should be open to learning. Actually, guess what? They're not bad. They're not. You know, I misassess. Okay, so you're you're stuff. saying that your heart is honestly open to Satan? Yeah. If if I find okay. out, are you are you Asian, are you seeking Satan? Are you? Well, oh, okay. So. You know, all yes, of all of your question, all of your criteria as honest seeker, are you doing that for Satan? Because I, I, honestly, I don't think that you're an I'm honest not Satan 100%. seeker. Yeah. Um, okay. So no, I, I am. Then okay. I, I am open because I'm not 100 percent convinced Christianity is true. Okay. So yeah, you're, you're too easy. You will just say the the wild, crazy thing, and I have nowhere to go from there. But maybe, no, but maybe you can address it because I'm not 100 knowledgeable that Christianity is true. I, I only know that there's a guy named Satan, and he's a, he's a bad guy because the Bible tells me so. Right? I'm I'm justified in believing that because but but Christianity he may but he true. may not be a bad guy. Have you you have said the seeker's prayer to Satan, right? <laughs> no, I, I don't expect as a seeker you don't have to pray to oh, okay. God. Believe it. I'm just saying, you've done all of the things for Satan that you want me to do for your God. Sure. No one, yeah. Okay. Right. <laughs> uh, I, I think a, you may have lost a lot of Christians, but okay. <laughs> because they're coming at it. We have biblical knowledge that Satan is evil, right? So on the given that Christianity is true, of course I'm not open to Satan. Oh. Um, but I am open to the possibility that I might be, that Christianity might be wrong. Um 
maybe there's some guy that is named Satan out there, um, despite Christianity being false, and he's not a he's not a bad guy or something. You know, if if Satan is not just an entity, but he's you know Satanism or or some a part of some kind of religion, and I, I'm assessing whether that religion is true or not. Yeah, you need to be open. Okay. Well, I once quipped that I am as open to your God as you are open to Satan. That's so right. I will I will try to to be true to that, um, and I will I will let it go there. Okay. All right. Cool. Uh, so Matt, um, we had a question from Lisa, and Lisa's. Yeah, the... can, sorry. Can I, I? You guys have chatted around a lot. There's a there's a point I'd just like to drop in. I know you've probably batted around this subject quite a bit, and um, uh, and I gave a very very brief or short answer uh, earlier. Um, I'm in the same position as David Adange on this, but I just like to just look at it from a slightly different angle to try to to clarify some of what's being said. Um, but yeah, my answers to David's questions are yes, 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 but. Um, and the the but is change the evidence and you change my position. Mm-hmm. Um, uh, let me um, let let me rewind a, uh, a little bit. You go go searching on the internet. Go searching for for other people's blogs. There are hundreds upon hundreds of cr- former Christians out there who are blogging about their experience of exiting Christianity. And their experience of leaving Christianity is almost unanimously a long and painful process. And they are doing that long and pro- painful process is this process that David is asking about, which is questioning and questioning, trying to find the place where Christianity is true, trying to find that that formula, the answer to that formula. Um, And they spend a good long time doing that. So the reason why I say it is absolutely yes, there is a time to stop is is a practical reason. You know, the theological reason has been expressed uh, and, and you've answered that. But I want to put in a case for sheer practicality. These people haven't got they they've done all the work, they've done all they have no longer got the time or the energy to continue doing this. It is also so stressful for them, it's bad for their mental health. So these people need to stop, not because, mm. not, not for any reason to do with their, the perpetuality of their soul, but they need to stop because of their mental health. They become, they will, if they continue down this, they'll become a dysfunctioning human being. Uh, because of the tension and the stress and the upset that this whole process is, is doing for them. Thank so you for that saying is that my, so much. I appreciate that. Because that, that, that happened to me. To I am also one of the, the, these people. And the journey that these people go to, sometimes there is enormous personal cost. Sometimes it costs people marriages. Sometimes it costs people their their children. It is an enormously painful thing. And these... and the practicality part of that is they must stop. They have to build up that wall and walk away and say, no, enough. Okay. Well, yeah, I would, like I said, right, it's, you have to be in a true seeker, a real seeker, whatever you want to call it. Um, yeah, but they are, but it's within, they're, No, no, no. Being a true seeker is costing them. Right. That, so that's the point me, I make. Yeah. That, so that's what I'm going to say with the second point is, but within practical limits, it, I don't. I don't have time to 
go around and read all the books I want to, or to read all the blogs, or or study everything. I, I like or to answer long questions. Like when I started on the boards, I was able to respond better than I can now and stuff like that. Right. So nobody denies that someone might not have the time to do everything they can. God accommodates that. If if you're saying there's a medical um, the fact that you guys lumped yourselves into that, I, I, I don't think, I wouldn't agree with you on that. But if there is actually a medical reason someone can't do it, of course, they, they don't have the responsibility to go out and, and search these things. God, it's on God to reveal himself to that person within, before the point of no return. Um, so, yeah, because David, in his question, he wants, get rid of this point of no return thing, just in the moment. So I, I've been trying to answer in the moment. Yeah, I admitted that there are people that can be rationally justified um, in in thinking it's false, but that person should never stop being a real seeker to the to the point that they are able to be such. Uh, you always need to be open if there is an opportunity that you are mentally and and time wise you are able to take advantage advantage of in whatever way to the best of your ability. Then you are obligated to do that. So that's, yeah, that's my final take. Okay. No, uh, thank you, Dale. There's lots more I could say about this, but it's probably best for for the, the forum decide uh, so it's time to move on. Yeah. So, so Matthew, this is, you're going to ask Lisa's uh, question. So Lisa is the one who recommended doing this Gorilla, Gorilla Christian show. Thank you very much for that, Lisa. Um, um, and yeah, so she's asked um, an interesting question uh, or a series of questions that's, uh, sort of related to her field. She's a gynecologist. So, yeah, I'll turn it over to Matthew to ask the question. It's um, okay. is, is Lisa on the Unbelievable Forum? Because I must confess I don't recognize the name, but that might be my poor observation skills. No, she's not. She's a friend of David, I think. I think she knows David from the past. And that's uh, all right. Okay. Actually, well, she's, I, I... she's an SNS uh, uh, commenter and emailer. Okay, right, okay. I, I clearly haven't spent enough time on the SNS board, so I need to rectify that. Uh, anyway, I love this question. I think it's a fabulous question. This question actually sent me hunting down a, a Bible and looking for various associated uh, passages, which is not something I normally do. I, I, uh, I don't enjoy looking at Bible verses. I've done enough of it in the past. Um, so anyway, so Lisa comes on with the menstruation question. Thank you, Lisa. Is this natural body function a sin, as the Bible suggests? And how does pigeon blood work in the cell supernatural realm? Brackets, I'm assuming, to clean a woman. Specifically, how does this magic work? Now, one of the reasons why I went looking was I don't remember a connection between pigeon blood and menstruation, and I still couldn't find one. So... Um, maybe I'm reading the wrong version, but anyway, uh, go ahead. I'm really looking forward to this one. Okay. I think so, all she was, sorry, Dale. I think all oh, she was saying in regard to pigeon blood um, is the same thing as if she'd said the blood of bulls and goats. I think she's simply yeah. talking about the fact that the blood of some animal sacrifice was uh, sufficient to cleanse a woman in Old Testament tradition. Um, of, so sorry, Lisa. You can insert whatever here. <laughs> insert whatever impurity they were perceived to have, and I'll echo Matthew when I say, uh, 
Thank you, Lisa, uh, for the question. I think it's remarkably on point. But I, I think that's what she was saying, Matthew, is just that the blood of some sacrifice was sufficient to cleanse a woman of in, insert whatever wrong here you, you want. Yeah, yeah, cool. Uh, so yeah, I, I, um, I think this is a good, um, an interesting question. It, it's, it's not one that comes up quite a lot. Um, and I did actually do some, some research on it myself, and I'll provide a link I'll provide a link um, for you guys in the comments when this round table comes up. Uh, so you want to check that out, Lisa, that's great. Um, so the first place, is is the natural body function a sin? No, it's not. I don't think the Bible does suggest that it is a sin. Um, I think that's you reading it in because uh, it requires, you know, it requires procedures for ritual purity or, or you know, like, oh, well, when a woman gives birth, um, to a boy, I think it's seven days uh, before they're ritually pure. If they give birth to a girl, it's double that. It's 14 days or something. What What's going on with this this kind of stuff? It's almost like, um, you know, does God, uh, the, the article I'm thinking of, it was saying, does God hate women? Um, and is the pain that they go through proof of that, proof that God hates them? So, you know, menopause or menstruation and giving birth and all of that. Um, and so yeah, it's it's not a sin, um, and it's I think you hint what Andrew hinted at it. What what the Bible's getting at is, so if you remember from our show on blood, the punishment for sin is death, uh, spiritual and physical, and blood represents the life, right? So this is why, you know, Old Test in the Old Testament, blood is is seen as necessary for atone atonement or. Uh, even for approaching God in general, to, there are thanksgiving sacrifices, and it's not always about atoning. It, in any way, to make a covenant or to bridge that gap, that's that separation from God, blood is necessary. Um, and that's done on a ritualistic level. It's purely symbolic. The pigeon blood, there's no magic at work with the pigeon blood or bull blood or goat's blood or lamb's blood, whatever you want to say, whatever sacrifice is necessary for the menstruation specifically or, or giving birth to a child. Um, this is why God, it, it's meant to be a tutor because it's looking forward uh, to Jesus' ultimate sacrifice, which actually does uh, atone for our sins. Um, so yeah, there, there is no magic. I, I can't, there is no magic going on. This doesn't actually atone uh, as though you're sinning when you're menstruating or or giving birth or something like that. Um, yeah, I think, why I think, would why would a woman need to go through the cleansing period if she's if it's not uh, stained um, after, after the menstruation? Because it's showing due respect for blood, right? That's what's coming out. It's it's putting an emphasis on okay, blood is linked to you know it's it's something that you want to be. You, you want to show the due respect for you're giving up your blood kind of thing. And that's that's why when you give birth to a boy, apparently, uh, I read this somewhere, I don't know if it's true, Lisa probably will, she's a gynecologist, but there's more blood that comes out if you have a give birth to a girl than a boy um, because the girl bleeds as well, the, the baby bleeds as well. I don't know if that's true or um, not. But I don't know. So no, nothing, I, I, nothing I, occult about this at all. I, I, guess, I, I withdraw. <laughs> I'm a father of children. I'm not entirely sure that's true. <laughs> I, have, I, I have no idea either. Yeah. 
I would fully expect that the amount of blood that uh, is a result of birth would have to do with the size of the baby and not the gender of the baby. Now, I, I'll, I'll, if I'm wrong, I would happily let Lisa weigh in on this since she's a, a professional. The, the part right. that I don't understand but, is it but, doesn't matter how much blood comes out. Why do you need to well, why do you need to atone for it? Or why do you need to, I, need to be considered unclean because you bled? I want to I want to ask that question slightly differently because there's this notion of being respectful of blood and that somebody is giving up blood. I suspect um, having been in a in a fair few relationships with women in my life, um, and maybe we won't dig too deeply into that. Um, <laughs> No. We're not going to fact check you know, any of that's, this. That's that's for the S and M after show, maybe. <laughs> but uh, but uh, I I think that the women that I have been in a relationship with wouldn't qualify menstruation as giving up blood. It's not as if they're making a, a conscious choice uh, once a month to, to give up. So, 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 Okay, and look, guys, I, I, David, I you're killing me, man, because I'm not trying to be ridiculous. I'm but trying it to is ridiculous, it. though. <laughs> it's just, it's so crazy. Why the heck? So you, you're ministering, ministrating, and somehow you've got to purify yourself before God because now you're unclean. Well, guess what? I cut my finger the other day, and then I bled. Was I was not unclean. <laughs> I just the heaven, <laughs> yeah, the, the heavenly host of menstruation products. Yeah. Um, no, so no, no, yes, no. it is silly. I'm sorry. I I am laughing at it because it is silly. It is a cult. It is unexplainable in any reasonable way. I'm sorry. I've been. To, I, I'm shutting up. It's over. I'm, I'm stopping. Okay, but but I do. I Dale, for me, in regard to your response, I, I'm not trying to not take this seriously. I'm, in fact, mm -hmm. I am making an effort to take it as seriously as it should be, because if there are 2.4 billion Christians in the world, there's at least 1.2 billion of them that are women. So yeah. I, I do want to take this seriously, okay? Yeah. And the notion of respecting blood, in this case, without being a woman as well, I find offensive because this is not a voluntary act. Uh, okay. Um... I'm not. I'm not. Sh I don't. I'm not sure where the offense is coming from. Like it's just sort of uh, like when Ada. You know, it's all related to the reproduction cycle, right? That was the punishment that God gave to Eve in the Garden of Eden. Um, in addition to to death, it, does it not say that? I don't know who's laughing. But. Sure. No. 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 Look, it, it does say that. I think that you're when you say I don't know where the offense is coming from. I I think you're. I think you're hitting all around it. You, you're right in the middle of the bullseye right now. If you, if you just look around you, you'll see the painted circle. Because when you say that, you know, there's this, there's this notion that the reproductive cycle is offensive. And, and, and therein is where we should respect some uh, menstruation or that menstruation is, is worthy of some purification process. I think that's where you're going to find that women are offended. They're, what they're, what you will hear is, this is not a voluntary act, and it's not something about which they feel they should be ashamed or be purified from. It's not dirty. Yeah, they, they don't. It's, it's not, not a dirty. They it, don't. You don't need to be clean 
if you're not she dirty. There's yeah, nothing like, dirty about a period. Let me just say that for the audience right now, no matter what weird okay, thing comes okay, next, okay. it's not dirty. Stop weird it. thing. Thank you. Thank you. Okay. Stop it. So it's, I, I already answered that, right? I said it's not a sin. Women don't need to feel ashamed. I, I, I'll provide, okay. I want you guys to read my source. But the reason God gave that punishment is a, is a reminder. This is why in the Old Testament, bearing children is uh, almost seen as next to salvation, right? Obviously, as a Christian, oh, it's because through the seed of the woman, the Messiah would be born, Jesus. The period and Jesus is not a punishment. It's it's yeah it's it's no it's, it's sort not. of meant as a punishment. No, a it's not. It. It's not a punishment. I've read the story. Period's not a punishment. It was pain during childbearing. That's not a period. Period's not a punishment. It's not dirty. I don't know where you're getting this from. Okay, whatever. So it's it's the point of the curse is it's really period's to not a part of the curse. It's, it's it related is, to the reproduction cycle, yeah? The so reproduction cycle. How are you getting that? I, this is why I think the Bible is saying that you have to purify yourself after menstruation or, or that sort of thing, right? It's not just about birth. They've got to sacrifice a pigeon or goat or bull after menstruation. That's your question. Why would the Bible order that? So I'm but trying the curse to is specifically childbirth. It doesn't mention any other part of the cycle. It specifically says childbirth. And it specifically says pain. Uh, And so it's, I don't know where you're getting the idea that a period is a part of a punishment that needs purification. If it is a part of a punishment. So let let me just, okay, let me, let me just dive in and, and ask the necessary corollary. If this period is part of a punishment, and it has to do with the reproductive cycle and, and all of that jazz. Now, and let me just take that all as granted. Okay. Mm-hmm. So surely there should be some equivalent, um, some equivalent sort of act uh, when men masturbate. Uh, well, yes, Andrew, they go blind. <laughs> I just, no. I- I have on good authority. I mean, so. Okay, guys, I've got to take... Okay, so I've got to... You're on my list, buddy. So I'm, I'm, yeah. being, I'm being serious, because yes. what we're saying here... I, so I, I want to draw this out biologically, and by the way, so here, we have a professional, so Lisa, if I'm wrong about the reproductive cycle, I invite you to correct me. But the notion that the period is part of the reproductive cycle and, the, and blood and all of that jazz is that the woman is losing an ovum. The woman is losing an ovum that is part of the reproductive cycle. And that ovum is not fertilized. So she's lost that ovum during her period. Now, any guy who does something like steal his seed on the ground, which, by the way, is a biblical reference for anybody that wishes to look it up. Oh, man. Um, surely... Surely, those sperm are equivalent to the lost ovum. And that is the only way that I can see of making sense of this story. And if that doesn't make sense of the story, then boys and girls, the story does not make sense. Okay, so, yeah, that the, gen- the book thing in Genesis isn't... Onan didn't do something bad because he... Uh, 
put it. But put women it do. But women are. But women are doing something. No, I said it's not a sin for them to menstruate, right? God. No, no, you, I know you. You did. say I, you sin first. This is why she gets her specific punishment, specific to her, not to men, about childbearing. And that punishment was. It's meant to be a reminder. You know, when you're giving pain and birth, you're gonna. You meant to remember. Oh, this is because of what happened in the Garden of Eden, and I'm going to salvation is coming through the birth of the child. God didn't sure. make that curse to men, so that's possibly why it's not. But seen now, as- but now, wait a minute. We've we've so Dale, you know, I appreciate you. I'm not I'm not trying to run over you or or challenge you in some unnecessary or abrupt or or you know some negative way. We've shifted topics from menstruation to giving birth. And I was drawing a parallel between menstruation and loss of semen, loss of sperm during masturbation. And and by the way, I don't, you know, if, if this topic is uncomfortable for some of the listeners, this may go on for another minute or two, probably not much longer, but it's okay to skip ahead. So we are talking specifically about menstruation and loss of that ovum and the notion of purification. And what you've said here is that there's a, there's a notion of purification that is justified even though there is no sin associated with menstruation. Now, my challenge to that is if there is no sin associated with menstruation, I would invite you to tell me in some reasonable way why there's a need for cleansing. David, I think you asked that, so I'll, I'll just call back to that. And, and say, what is cleansing if it's not related to sin? And I would like another example of a cleansing in the Bible that was not associated with sin because that's the line being drawn here. Okay. Um, so, yeah, the... There are such examples, I think. I can't think okay. of it offhand, but there are there are ritual purity things that are not associated with sin, from what I remember. Um, okay. Um, but yeah, even this, it isn't about sin. Right? This is about ritual purity, and the Old Testament laws are a reflection of a ancient Near Eastern culture. God is compromising to give them laws uh, in in terms of what they would accept or what they would understand and then trying to push it forward it's not the moral ideal um so god is trying to teach them about the importance of blood and that's why there's these uh these laws and it's also meant as a reminder of hey remember remember the garden of eden when you're when you're going going through the pain of childbirth and things associated around the reproductive cycle of, of women menstruation menopause as well um you're meant to remember that uh, this, your salvation is going to come through your loins, right? The, the Genesis 3 passage, the, through the seed, the Messiah will come. And this is why there is such a focus in the ancient Near, East, Near Eastern culture, in the Old Testament, especially early on. There's this focus on childbearing. That's our salvation. That's, that's the all. They, almost, they don't even care about heaven and hell or, or none of that. Um, it, the main focus is how many kids can we pop out and uh you know and that that's they saw their salvation through the childbirth so yeah that's what i think but i'll provide a link and you guys can actually research it because this is not 
an area I specialize in. It's it's not an area that is important to me personally. I, I was doing this because it's it's something important for Lisa. So yeah, I, you know, give give the link that I'll provide a read and see if that makes more sense than what I've provided here. That's a fair response. I mean, you, you've worked at this pretty hard. Um, Dave, do you have a a follow up or Matthew? No, uh, uh, Matt um, yeah, shift I, crazy. So I th that's <laughs> that's all I got there. <laughs> okay, and Matt says do. Um, okay. <laughs> yeah. No. 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 I said I do have a comment. Okay. Uh, yeah. I. I. I'm not going to respond then. This will be yeah, it. No, that's uh, that's fine. Well, um, purely just a tangential observation. Men are clearly cursed not to be able to take body functions seriously. So I, I think we all need to acknowledge uh, that one. Um, but in reading through the passages on, on menstruation and, and blood being spilt, uh, etc., the overriding impression that I get is this is written by a man who finds this stuff icky. And that's just what I get. So a man has gone, ooh, I don't like that. How can I legislate that out of my life? So he's come up with these, quite frankly, ridiculous rituals uh, to go with it, just to justify his own fear or what he doesn't understand. And yeah, it's it's disgusting and, and it's despicable. Um, so that's that's my feeling on that. But there is a critical part of Lisa's question which hasn't been addressed and that is how does this work um, and I think this question can also yeah. flow backwards to the baptism thing how does this work if this is so important if this is so critical how is this supposed to work because frankly I don't think it does oh and uh, just one one last little thing um, cleaning blood blood is not a cleaning fluid blood does not cleanse anything it's just bloodlust but anyway carry on okay uh okay so I, really really quickly then and this will be it and we're gonna go to tara's next okay so uh i did i did address how does it work with with this i i specifically said it, it doesn't work we're not cleansing sin it, it's not a sin in the first place and it's not it it doesn't no, no, forget work the sin bit. forget the sin bit it's specified in the bible as a ritual that must be done yeah what, so what is it thing? How, how, how is it? What, what is the mechanism by which is going on here? What is the communication of this blood to God? What is going on in the cosmos, you know, in the ether, what, whatever adjective you want to use? What's going on that makes it work? Nothing. God, God looks on it and says, all right, good. You're, you're remembering, I'm giving you a tutor. You're remembering blood is important. So when Jesus comes, uh, you'll recognize that you can only be saved through blood and then you'll be like the you'll believe in the atonement it's it's setting up salvation history that's all it does it's it's a tutor it 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 has no mechanics of cleansing sin at all the the blood of animals is meaningless really i mean it, it it's okay. it's yeah it, it could have been flower petals as, as david brought up on our show on blood but in order to make God's point, he had to use blood to sink it through their heads that at the end of the day, you can't be atoned through flower petals. It has to be the atonement of Jesus. So, yeah. Uh, all right, cool. So, so he, so he oh. could do it in, in, in absentia. He could just do it, the cleansing or whatever it is, but to satisfy his 
own pathetic existence, he requires that we must do something in order to receive what he could give to us without us having to do it. Okay, yeah, well, I'm, okay, so I, uh, okay, so I was too hasty then, because the, the blood is, is how we can abridge the gap and approach God. That's necessary to, uh, to uh, cure the spiritual death that, that is separation from God, God and man. Um, but yeah, actually, so I didn't misspeak because that's not, uh, taking place with the blood of these animals that only takes place through the blood of Jesus. The blood of the animals is symbolic, just like the ritual of baptism. I'm not being cleansed by going in the waters of baptism. I'm doing an ordinance, a symbol, and I'm obeying Jesus. So there's no, there is no magic taking place with these animal sacrifices. So yeah, uh, all right, cool. So uh, Andrew, you're gonna, you get the joy of asking our friend Tara's question. Uh, she is interested in part in Dale's Shroud series. And she asks, I think, um, about, a, about the Shroud sort of in a vacuum. So if we take the Shroud and, and suggest that the Shroud is a, is a real biblical artifact, uh, it did in fact wrap the body of Jesus in, in some tomb in, uh, in the ancient past. She says, if, if the shroud is real, and you could convince everyone in the world that the shroud was real, how would that help you bring people into the fold of Christianity, given that that's your objective, Dale, with the shroud series? Okay, so with Tara's question, I, I have a twofold response on the shroud. So that the first is that I think if I could prove the Christian God is true through the evidence of the shroud, that many uh, skeptics would then reconsider their opinions about the Christian God being immoral based on certain Bible verses. Uh, this I don't make the claim that all of them would immediately come to my point of view. Uh, some of them would undoubtedly still say, no, I still think it's immoral. But I think many of them would see my point and be more sympathetic to it if they actually knew it was real. Um, my second my second answer is, so when I studied the Shroud, I'm doing this out of order because when I started it, I first proved that God exists. And by God, that includes a morally perfect God. So I, I've already got a morally perfect God. And then I'm answering asking the question, well, does Christianity represent that morally perfect God that I know already know exists? Um, and then by proving Christianity is true, it is from God, then I've got, okay, well, then I've got that the Christian God is morally perfect. Um, but if you're just coming in, coming in from, okay, well, I've proved the shroud and, and the Christian God is true, but I haven't established, well, is, is this God morally perfect or good or not? Um, then of course that that's a question that needs to be attempted. So uh, it needs to be answered, and that's being assumed in my shroud series that I've already done the work on that front. Uh, so yeah, I'll, I'll turn it over to uh, I think yeah David first. Uh, David, what's your follow up? I don't think I need to spend too much time with it. I'm uh, I'm a shroud, not just a shroud skeptic, but a shroud 
shrugger, I guess. I, it, it just wouldn't matter. Um, so let's say it's an authentic piece of cloth that covered a dead man in the first century. Uh, there, may, there must be many such cloths. I don't care. So what's the magic of the shroud? Um, it's got an image on it. There are just too many ways that the image can be on it that I, 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 I can't even be bothered to engage with that. Um, and so, but let's say further, well, it's a magical image. Uh, that does not, in fact, identify, uh, uh, tie it to Jesus of Nazareth. Um, so let's say it's a magical image and it's somehow tied to Jesus of Nazareth. Uh, you still don't get a resurrected Jesus <laughs> from that. You, you get a dead Jesus and a cloth that none of his followers uh, in, in, you know, found in time to make the Bible uh, publication. So I just, there's, there's so many degrees of separation between this shroud and the Jesus story. Uh, I, I can't begin to engage with it. Okay, uh, so that, that wasn't exactly Tara's question, but it, okay, I get it. So, so Andrew, what if the shroud is proven to be all, all of those? It's proven to be a G belief authenticating event, which includes all three of the things that David was saying he find, he's skeptical of. Tara's saying, even if I could establish all of that, because we've got these immoral things, who cares if the Christian God is true? I, I wouldn't, I don't care about this or the shroud at all. Uh, well, how would you follow up? Well, I think what I would say is something along the lines of, of where Tara is. Um, if I had an artifact that I could tie uh, to Jesus, and let's say the shroud is that object, tying a, tying a piece of history to a dead person doesn't create any moral imperative on my part. And so what seems strange to me is that the shroud could be considered proof of Christianity. Because surely proof of Christianity is about the moral claims, not the supernatural claims. So if we've, if we've got some guy who changes water to wine or raises dead people or can ascend uh, into outer space or into another dimension or whatever, those abilities don't create a moral imperative. And they don't tell a moral story. And so the shroud is, for me, largely irrelevant in regard to the way I live my life from an ethical perspective. If I wanted to live my life as a Christian and I were searching for proof of those moral imperatives, I would actually expect to find a supernatural artifact that confirmed those moral imperatives not that confirmed that somebody was wrapped in a piece of cloth. Okay. Uh, and, yeah, Matthew, what's your take? Um, yeah, well, I think Tyra's not being quite as specific enough for my liking in her question. Um, well, because the shroud is real. You know, it's a piece of cloth with an image on it. You can go and visit it occasionally when it's brought out on display there are images of it uh, on the internet and uh, documentation of studies on it. So it's there, it's a real piece of history. Quite what part it has played in history is what the question is. And um, Tara's not been quite specific enough about what part of this history are we supposed to uh, accept. But let's say for argument's sake, it is 
um, without question established uh, that it is the result of a resurrection process uh, from a body. That, which Christian interpretation of that God does that get me to? It, right. I, I, I don't know. You know, there, there are too many problematic areas in going from the crowd, from the shroud to God. And I think that's not the direction that anybody should take. You know, if you want to end up with accepting that the shroud is a true representation of the, the risen Christ, then you need to start from God and work down to the shroud. I don't think you can get from the shroud to the Christian God satisfactorily, because at the end of the day, you still end up with which Christian God. Okay. Uh, yeah. Okay. And um, yeah, that's. Oh, I've already given my take. Uh, so, so yeah, I, I would sort of agree with uh, what you guys are saying. Um, I I do agree that you would need to establish this case uh, for Christianity proper, and I think the shroud attests to that. That that's one of the criteria in arguing that it's a Ghibli authenticating event, right? So I. Um, I don't think the issue of versions matters at all. It, it attests to Christianity proper. The issue of denominations or versions comes after you've got Christianity proper is true. Then you can figure out the specifics on that front, um, as well as as moral questions. Uh, yeah, you, you've got to you've got to ask. The shroud, on its own, um, doesn't prove uh, that the you know which morals i think that's what andrew was saying which morals you got to follow uh but it does attest to the truth of christianity and christianity includes ethical factual teachings a whole bunch a whole list of theological doctrines so it, it's the whole kit and caboodle that is being attested to by the shroud um because it fulfills this g-belief authenticating event uh criteria that i've i've laid out um, so yeah, um, that's my take there. Uh, Can I ask you a, a follow-up? If we if we don't have time, I, I accept that. But, a, a quick one, yeah, because we still got Sarah's to get. Oh, that's right. Thank you. Okay, so so good note. We do have one more question. Okay, so it seems to me that the the shroud can be seen as a as a piece of obfuscation against Christianity in this way. If the moral imperatives of Christianity are true. So um, uh, one man, one woman together forever. Um, elders in the church must have certain qualifications. There's a, a right way and a wrong way to raise your children in, in some Christian environment. Wh whatever you think the moral imperatives are, it seems to me that a God that wanted to spend supernatural energy around confirming those moral imperatives would have actually created a supernatural object that would have confirmed those moral imperatives. So maybe you go rub the head of a Buddha and, and you're imbued with, with some sense of moral direction, right? Because the importance of Christianity are the moral claims that get you into heaven, not that some guy died and was resurrected from the dead. That's actually not a terribly important part of the story. The important part of the story is uh, the sins laid out in Romans chapter one, or uh, that baptism plays a key role in salvation, or how a husband treats his wife, how a wife is to behave in and out of public. 
It's those moral imperatives that Christians depend on to think that they're going to experience some everlasting life. And, and so it seems to me that God's wasting his time on a piece of cloth that wraps a dead body, even if it's a supernatural piece of cloth in some sense, because the actual thing that you want to do is create the moral compass. And the shroud doesn't do any of that, no matter how authentic it is. So that that's uh, that's not true actually because it's it's not just about the moral imperatives it's all the resurrection my my goodness I mean that's the atonement that most important thing related to how we live a moral Christian life it's impossible to live a moral Christian life without the resurrection so I I would put those things on par um, secondly we do have supernatural uh, it, obviously we're not going to get into how the Holy Spirit works but. There is the inner witness of the Holy Spirit, which does guide. The Bible says this is meant to guide Christians to live an increasingly more and more Christ-like life. So there is there is a supernatural, you know, rubba rubba Buddha type argument that Christians <laughs> do, do claim, and I I claim uh, it's not infallible. It, it you know it works to differing degrees depending on how open the person is and that sort of thing, right? Like people through the process of sanctification is what I'm getting at. But um, yeah, the, the, the main point is that I, these are equally important. And even if they weren't, uh, it doesn't matter because all that matters is can we get these moral knowledge of these moral truths and through the shroud or the resurrection or have, if we could prove Jesus turned water into wine, whatever it is, through these miracles, we can say, okay, well, this system as a whole is true. This religion is true, and therefore this divine revelation, which includes these moral aspects of how I live, these are sufficiently attached, and therefore I'm warranted in, okay, th God wants me to live this way. So as long as we can get those moral truths, then it doesn't matter. God doesn't directly have to authenticate each moral truth through a supernatural sign uh, if a supernatural sign of another aspect can get us by association those those other things. Um, so yeah, so that's okay. my take. All right, sense. I'll, I'll leave it there. Yeah, I, I won't I won't follow up. Um, I think it might be uh, worth listeners listening to that section a second time around. But but I will happily leave it there because we are running short, and and I do appreciate the answer. Oh no worries, you're up. All right, cool. So so David. Yeah, uh, you get to read Sarah's question. Sure, and just just on that last point, if anyone wants to follow up on that, there's a SNS episode on yep. sufficient attachment, and uh, we spend the whole hour on uh, on on that point. So that's that's Dale's show. So if you if you want to go back to that one, I don't remember which number it is, but it's it's in the catalog. Mm -hmm. um, the um, uh, question from Sarah is um, that. There's a question I have uh, for you. You placed Christianity at 53% initially, now 87%. Uh, your maths have gave you only a slight lead, but now you know you hadn't evaluated the data correctly, and it was wrong. Isn't that a problem? Um, and I, I remember you saying that your your number had changed. I, I. I don't think that the total number was 87%, but some part of it was. But So maybe when you answer Sarah's question, you can just give a little bit of explanation on your 
your number, your faith number, and how you got there. Okay, so so yeah, so uh, you're uh, David's absolutely correct. Uh, Sarah's kind of mis mishearing what I was saying. So um, I'm not saying my overall probability that Christianity is now 87 percent. I was saying that one of the positive pieces of evidence in that overall case. Uh, has jumped. So in, in order to get that 53 to 55%, what I, what I had when I originally converted, I was assessing the inner witness of the Holy Spirit evidence of, as 75%. It, since my conversion, it has gone up to 87%. Um, and I, you know, I, I don't want to get too personal. That, that was grounded in four experiences I've had so far where the Holy Spirit has gotten stronger attesting to the cr truth of the Christian faith. Now, when I plug that 87% in, and I haven't done that, I know I promised to do it, but it's it, it gets complicated with the vindication argument, and I've just been too lazy to to go through the calculations of that. Um, I don't know where it would come. It would probably be, I don't know, 65% overall is what, probably where it would come out, just as a guess, something like that. Um, so I'm, I'm not at 87% convinced Christianity is true now. That's just for the individual piece of evidence. Overall... I don't know where it is, maybe 60s, uh, who, who knows. Um, so yeah, and that, that's the only thing that's changed. On the negative end, I'm still at the same place. I, I gave that the highest that it will probably ever go, which is 95%. Like Christianity is false based on all the negative evidences. Um, and, you know, my the evidence on the shroud, that that's all stayed the same. Nothing's changed on that front. Um, so here, here's the essence, though, of, of her question. So... She's basically saying, well, you, overall, whatever it is, you're, you're going up. I, th I thought these probabilities, aren't, aren't you supposed to, once you get this probability, isn't that proof that, no, it, it is 53% kind of thing. And I, my method uses uh, normative probabilities, and it, it's open to changing in light of new information, right? My, my calculations only take into effect... Um, the evidences that, you know, garbage in, garbage out, or good stuff in, good stuff out kind of thing. I, I'm only using it uh, based on the evidences that go into it and my, my assessment of those. So if someone comes along with new evidence, uh, it says you were wrong in assessing this thing, it might go up or down. Um, or if somebody says you totally, like for example, in our next SNS thing, I, I'm going to be doing a series on messianic prophecies, and I'm going to be attempting, because I know I was telling David, you know, skeptics claim that I'm always hiding behind a defensive position. You're claiming, and I'm just providing a Molinistic defeater kind of thing. So with the Messianic prophecies, even though I'm not sure I can establish it, I'm going to attempt to make a claim and try to argue for it as a G-Belief authenticating event. Um, so that wasn't included in my overall calculation at all. If I'm successful, which I might not be, I, I don't know how it's going to come out, um, my probability will be going up because it's feeding in new information, a new piece of evidence, a new G-Belief authenticating event that I never even, it wasn't a part of my original calculation at all. And that, that's not a problem at all. That's fine. That's the way we should live our lives. We should always be open to getting new data and, and new assessment or, or new information and that sort of thing, If, if unless you're 100% convinced, as I, as I said to David before. So, yeah, I'll turn it over for follow-up. Uh, we'll go reverse order. So, so Matt, what's uh, do you have any follow-ups on on that or? Um. Yeah, I'm a little bit puzzled by by numbers uh, here. I'm 
fairly sure I'm not the only one who's um, noticed it. But if it's okay to jump feet first into Christianity at 53% or whatever, why are you not allowed to jump out and, unless it's uh, you're over 99% sure that it's false? To jump? No. Uh, if 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 I if I learn something new and I I reduce down to um, like I think your question is related to the nat- like if if overall I go below if I go 50% or below I would no longer be a Christian at that point. Uh, what you're talking about with the 95% is the negative evidences. Um, no, I think you misunderstood. Yeah, okay. you're misunderstanding what I'm saying. Back uh, right back at the very beginning, in the first thing, we're, one of the early questions we we're talking about, we're mm-hmm. talking about when is it when is it good enough to stop seeking Christianity? And you you said you need to be more than 99% certain that this isn't going to get you to Christianity. Uh, no, I think it, you need to be 100% certain before you can. If there's even a if there's even a small fraction of a percentage, you should you should always be open to learning something new or, you know, to whatever degree is possible. Um, yeah. But you're quite happy to jump into Christianity at numbers far, far less than 99% certainty. So there's a, a, quite a big... Yeah, but I'm, I'm still I'm still open, right? Like, I'm, I'm open to the fact that I could be wrong and that Islam is true. I, I, even though I've made my decision, I still need to be a true or real seeker myself. Christians don't get off the hook. If, if I'm not 100% convinced Christianity is true, I need to be open too, or I'll, pay, or I'll, or I'll be responsible. If, if Islam's true and I go, die and go up to hell, go up to heaven, and Allah's there and He says you are a Christian, um, and I'm like, well, I studied the evidence, and that's where it came up to. Yeah, but you weren't open. You didn't study this new evidence from Shabir Ali. Remember, Shabir emailed you and said you should check this out and you said the heck with it I'm not going to look at it so that's that's my fault so yeah I'm still open that I could be wrong okay um, alright yeah, yeah so I'm feeling like there's special pleading going on here yeah <laughs> okay I don't get it but okay alright cool so that's uh, can I, can I, I go next I know that you've yes, got Andrew but this directly follows with what Matt said because I, I had the same you see we what people don't know is that um, Dale and I just had a discussion for an hour and 20 minutes yep. <laughs> um, and in that discussion uh, Dale was making the argument that um, even though he might be uh, 65% or more certain that maybe a biblical passage seems sexist to him, uh, that would leave 35% that maybe it's not and that it's okay. He would go with the 35% because he has faith in God, essentially. He's yep. got faith in Christianity. Yep. So he would yep. take the lesser percentage and, and run with that because he thinks that he has overriding evidence. Uh, dis- despite those numbers, and yet he's not giving the unbeliever the same grace that they've got. E- e- let's say they agree with your numbers and that Christianity is 65% certain, but maybe they've got overriding evidence that would let them uh, go with that 35%, and you're not you're not letting them off the hook in the same way. So I, I would say even oh, more right. than Matt, you are using a double standard. Matt just didn't hear the conversation uh, where you really spelled it out. So no, then. So because you're not, and I, I really spelled it out for you. So I, I, in the context that we're talking about here, uh, absolutely what I said to Matt was correct. 
in the context of me asking, is Christianity true? Um, I, it's more probable than not that it goes in as a negative and or positive evidence, uh, either for or against Christianity, depending on what it is. So if I'm evaluating, if my question is, is Christianity true or not, I'm still including that 65% thing against Christianity. But it, you, what we were talking about on our show is, well, now that I'm a Christian, in the context of a Christianity, you know, I've got my overriding argument that I'm warranted in believing Christianity is true. I'm warranted in believing that the Bible is sufficiently attached to Christianity. And I'm warranted in believing that God would not allow undue confusion in the sense of allowing errors of moral commandments in the Bible. You know, I, I said I'm 95% certain God would not allow those types of errors to occur in the Bible. So as a Christian, with, with that overriding argument as part of my background knowledge before I assess this, then I would go with the 35%. And I would say, well, in isolation, I'm 65% certain uh, this, is, this is immoral or this is an error or something. But I'm going to have faith in God. There's a 35% chance I'm wrong on that based on this overriding argument that Christianity is true, blah, blah, blah. Okay, I'm going to go with the 35%. I believe it's not immoral. I don't know how to explain it. I, I don't know, but I have faith that there is an explanation somewhere in that 35% thing. So I, I, that's I don't know if that makes sense to Andrew and, and Matt who who hadn't who didn't have the full explanation. But that that's sort of what David's hinting at here. Does that make sense, guys? Or so yes no. I have to, yeah, I have to be honest. I, I'm not complete. I, I, I understand that you're being sincere and you're genuinely trying to explain your position, Dale, sir. But, but you're going to have to forgive me. I, I, I'm not getting it, and it's not, it's not landing in my brain as a, as a cohesive uh, argument. And I need to think through a little bit more how I need to reflect that, that back at you in a, in a healthy and helpful way. And I'm, I'm not in that point now. So it's probably best I. I don't Here, try to, to if talk I can just give um, if if I could just give one helpful example this is what me and David were saying and it won't take long just just see tell me if this helps just at a conceptual level of understanding so we were taking all the evidence for the law of gravity and David was saying always oh, 99.99% sure that this is true or something like something very the evidence is overwhelming for the law of gravity right um now let's say one day we have an isolated event where David gets sucked upwards through his roof. Um, would David be justified or warranted in saying, "Well, this this anomaly that took place that proves the law of grab that proves that the law of gravity is wrong"? I would say no, because he needs to fault. He needs through the principle of falsification. He needs to um, prove that actually the law of gravity is not right with all the evidence we have i think that overrides that anomalous experience we can explain it as maybe aliens came overhead and used a tractor beam that doesn't mean the law of gravity is wrong and he needs to eliminate all those other options in order to truly falsify or overturn the overriding evidence in effect he needs he needs to prove a hundred percent because what else can beat ninety nine point nine 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 percent that the law of gravity is false because of this isolated anomalous experience that doesn't the, the law the evidence for the law of gravity overrides that isolated experience is what i'm trying to say 
Um, so yeah, Andrew, did, did you have any thoughts or? Yeah, you see, I got that there. Yeah, that doesn't help me because I think you're using the roof experience to argue for God. But anyway, yeah, move on to Andrew. Argue for God. Okay. Okay. Uh, yeah. Andrew. So possibly, possibly I'm in a similar place as Matthew. Matthew, tell me if I'm wrong, but it seems to me that that we've got some conflation going on here that that needs to be identified and dealt with. So identifying a discrepancy in the law of gravity however that might be done, is very different from the type of evidence that would be necessary to prove a more subjective claim about human ethics. And so I think right away, if we were uh, to say that David, as for instance, uh, encountered some circumstance that ran counter to our understanding of physics, that would be very different and how we would go about analyzing that would be very different than the way we might analyze um, one woman being pro-abortion and another woman being uh, sure. pro-life, okay? Mm -hmm. and, and so I think that right away, we have a, a very different kind of statistical landscape. Mm -hmm. And I would encourage all of the listeners to try to do something like Pick any historic event and come up with some evidence about that historic event that proves the moral values of the people involved in the historic event versus just proving that the moral that the historic event in fact happened. Because that's where we are. We're not actually playing the game of trying to prove historical events. If indeed we could prove everything, every, if indeed we could prove every act in the Bible was actually a historic event, we still would be not much closer to proving the ethics behind those events. That's not to say that there wouldn't be some implications, but it's a very strange thing to say that we can get from historic event, that's the is in this thing to the ought that we ought to do what those characters did. And so in some sense, even though I'm a computer programmer, I, I live my life based around organized rules of, of reason. I don't, I don't mean to draw. I'm just thrilled that Andrew, as a skeptic, recognizes the difference. You can't derive an ought from an is. I'm 100% with you on that. Sorry, sorry to interrupt. I just... <laughs> well, no, wait a minute. I'm, I'm not saying... I'm not saying that oh, okay. we necessarily can't. Okay, okay. What, I'm, what I am saying is that you haven't gotten from historic event to moral implication in any amount of math that you can do. True, I, I would agree. And, oh, okay, sorry. Oh, I'm, no, no, I'm, look, I'm sorry. You started talking and I, it was rude of me to interrupt. So please, you go ahead. Okay, well, I was just going to say I... I yeah, I, I agree with you. I'm not sure what you're like. Are you? It sounds like you're going back to the last question about can I prove the shroud or resurrection as a historical event. So I've 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 got the sufficient attachment to get that. But um, absolutely in principle, I I agree. You proving that the city of Jericho was conquered doesn't prove anything whether it was ethical or not. Uh, so right. there are are differences in terms of how uh, we arrive at 
at whatever degree of warrant we have. Like I, I would say I'm 95. Uh, let, let's say um, your 95% convinced the law of gravity is true, and your 95% convinced that it's slavery is wrong in the Old Testament. Well, you, you've got 95%. Now, the way you arrive there, law of gravity is a scientific uh, law. It, it's derived through scientific evidence, and there's a, a there's a difference. There is definitely a difference in how you arrive at those probabilities. But at the end of the day, if you're warranted, however you get there, then that's that's good enough. So if if I'm 95% warranted in in my claim that you know that with this overriding evidence uh, argument, overriding argument, then yeah, I can use that to override an isolated case where I'm uh, okay. Well, I'm 65% sure that in isolation this this doesn't make sense. But given that I know the Christian God is good, uh, you know, I, I've established this overriding argument and that's more probable than this then i'm going to say okay i'm going to place my faith in in that okay so i i don't want to chase this a a lot longer i will simply say i don't know what you mean by overriding argument because when i sit down to approach something from a more likely than not perspective when I actually want to analyze the evidence, work it into an equation and see what the result tells me, I don't have any such thing as an overriding argument. What I have is information that I feed into a statistical formula and it gives me a result. And that result can be empirically tested by taking similar information and feeding it into that formula and determining whether I get the same result. So in that sense, I don't have any such thing as an overriding argument. And if I do have something that I consider an overriding argument, I'm not trying to misquote you. I, I really am willing to no, let that, you have the last word on this. Okay? Yeah, that's the word I used. Yeah. So what I'm saying is if I want the math to do the work, uh-huh then I don't have a legitimate appeal to an overriding argument. What I have is an appeal to the math. If I have an appeal to an overriding argument, then I don't need the statistics. Okay, okay, so so sure. But your your statistics, statistical model or calculation, takes mm-hmm. into effect. It also includes what I'm calling an overriding argument. It includes that as evidence in the overall case, right? So your statistical model will, will weigh all of the evidence. If, if, if you're just using your statistical model to look at the isolated event, oh, David went through the roof, that proves gravity doesn't exist just based on that one fact, you would also take into all the other evidence as well. And then your statistical model would come up with what's more probable overall. So I, so I don't want to, I don't want to cut off a good conversation, assuming that this is one, but I, I do have to run. <laughs> <laughs> this is Sarah's question. I understand. It's, I, I, I understand that, but I'm, I'm, I'm up against it. So I'm, <laughs> I'm going to have to cut off. <laughs> I just go, these are the, these are the three I got. So that's what I want. Touche, David. <laughs> and, and I will take it from, from that very, uh, from that very comment that you weren't very compelled by the conversation. So. I don't know. I don't know. I, I, this is all about my head. <laughs> so. 
I just, just, well, just remember and, this, David. I'm right, and you guys are always wrong. And that, <laughs> that, that, in fact, so is the clearest thing you have said all said day. That. So, <laughs> Okay. So I will simply say I have been drinking through the course of, uh, of this uh, show. So if that comes out, yes, I've, I've been drinking through the course. Of the and show. I've been <laughs> contemplating how to start drinking. And so... Uh, oh. Oh, it's I, easy, I am Let going me... to start as soon as this is over. <laughs> no, look, I, I, but I am serious that if we're going to let the math do the work, we've got to let the math do the work. And there's no such thing in a statistical formula as an overriding argument. What there is is a data point. And what we can extrapolate from those data points. And so if David was sucked up onto the roof, that would not be an argument. That would be a data point. Okay. So, so yeah, it's, it's, it's semantics. I don't dis disagree with what you're saying. I'm using, I'm approaching it from more of a philosophical standpoint. You, you've got more of a statistical, fine. My overriding argument, let's call it data points, and let's call uh, David going through the roof a data point. You would put that together, and overall you would, you would decide. Kind of your statistical model would tell you what's more probable than not. And I, but it, what but I'm it wouldn't. But it, but that's what I'm saying. That's that's why what we do in the physical world is very different from what we do in philosophy. In the physical world, all that would suggest to us is that in some limited set of conditions, it might be possible that the law of gravity could be superseded. It wouldn't, it wouldn't imply anything um, metaphysical about the nature of our universe. It wouldn't have any ethical value. And that's why I'm saying that even if you can prove all the supernatural events that are in the Old Testament and the New Testament, you haven't gotten closer to proving the ethical claims. You see... The, the events themselves speak to the physical nature of the universe. Can David be sucked up onto the roof in, in contravention of everything that we think we know about gravity and quantum physics? Versus, does that event tell us anything about the nature uh, and moral implications of that event? Right, yeah. And, uh, and the answer is no, it doesn't. It, it if Christianity is true, it does, right? Like that's part of what I call the overriding argument. I'm, because I'm, I'm answering the, this question as a Christian, right? That's why there's a difference as to why I'm going with a, what I personally think in right. isolation. Is. So there's there's a lot going on in the conversation that's kind of behind the scenes that not not everyone has the same piece of. So. Um, yeah, yeah Dale's gotta, Dale's well, bigger overriding like... his overriding argument um, is that Christianity is true, and therefore no matter whatever else happens, um, don't, don't Christianity no is what. true. Just, like, <laughs> okay, but, but see that, that is, is true, that is the we data don't point, need any statistics. <laughs> right? Oh, that's right, what I'm not, saying. <laughs> so right. okay, so so it's not just that I've had too much to drink. I I am in fact embarking on a quest to engage in an argument through statistics that were brought up in this conversation 
that aren't actually being used yeah, because you, there is an overriding argument yes. that has nothing to do with statistics. Yeah, you're not you're not talking about well, the same yeah, stuff. Yeah, none of this. Stuff. <laughs> yeah, I, but I'm, I'm, I use that. Like I obviously, yeah. Like there's, I'm not. I don't use statistics in the same sense that Andrew's meaning it. But I was using that as, to illustrate my point with these normative uh, probabilities, which I assign to philosophical arguments and that sort of thing. Um, yeah, once I plug it into the formula, it, it calculates out to whatever. It Either way, get. I still think it all goes a little bit far afield from Sarah's original question, and I. Um, I don't. I don't want to re. I don't want to re-prosecute her. her yeah. Her, so, so her for question. Sarah, do, the answer to your question is no. It, it's not a problem that the probability changes. Uh, it can go up or down so long as it's sufficient for me to still be a Christian. Um, that's fine. And even even if it's not sufficient for me to be a Christian, okay, then I I lose my faith at that point. I I stop being a Christian. I do want to say to that, Dale. In, in fairness to the conversations that you and I have had around statistics and, and specifically the conversation we've had around Bayesian probability. Uh, Bayesian probability is the type of statistics that allows us through new evidence to analyze our prior position. And so in that sense, even, even if I think this notion of statistics and ethics is a little cockeyed, and I do think that this notion of evidence and ethics is a little cockeyed. In the sense that we're talking about Bayesian probability and updating the prior probability of a position, in that sense, you've done nothing wrong. It is fair to say that new evidence changes the probability that some, uh, that some premise is true. Perfect. Yeah, I couldn't. Awesome. All right. So, so yeah, I think, I think that's good. I think we've answered all the questions for everyone. Uh, hopefully you, you enjoyed uh, seeing the Christian on the hot seat for this grill, grill a Christian episode. Ho hopefully it met uh, Lisa's approval since she was the one who recommended to do this and yeah, had a, had a good time. Ha you, have a good week. Huh? I was just saying thank you, Lisa. Oh, no problem. Uh, so, so yeah, ha have a good week. Say, say goodbye, everybody. I, w goodbye, I was actually, everyone. I was hoping for a real grill that, uh, it's, that's not what happened. Well, a Andrew ha Andrew thought it was the wrong thing. He had the uh, the sauce, the barbecue sauce. Yeah, sorry. yeah, yeah. Had uh, had the Worcestershire sauce, yeah. the Worcestershire sauce, the barbecue sauce, the sauce. Yeah, you know, I was hoping for a real grill. Dale, um, you conducted yourself as a uh, as a consummate gentleman. Thank you as always, and thank you for taking on three skeptics. That cannot be uh, an easy task. And, uh, no problem. I, I enjoyed it. Yeah, thank thank you to you guys as well, and, and engaging me. And I think it was an interesting conversation, following up on, you know, the statistics and that sort of thing, and getting out. We got a lot of stuff out there. So yeah, uh, I'll be looking forward to, to listening to it myself. Thank you, David, and Matthew, as my the token Brit, yeah, as a token Brit here, it's Worcester sauce. Oh, okay. <laughs> and and I know it's also aluminium, but I'll I'll forever be raised in the southeast. So. <laughs> <laughs> All right, guys, have a, have a great uh, weekend. Yeah. Cheers, guys. Have a good one. All right. Bye bye. Thanks, pal. Ciao.